for today. Um, we thank you for beautiful weather. We thank you for the opportunity to talk about you as Trinity, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, uh, we just ask for help, um, help by your Spirit to speak of you rightly, um, to speak of you the Father rightly, to speak of the Son rightly, to speak of you the Spirit rightly. Help us, O Lord God. Um, help us to pray to you rightly. Uh, help us to relate to you rightly as the triune God. Um, Lord, we, we just ask for your grace. Um, we pray also just a preparation for our hearts, for the gathering of your people coming up shortly, and for those who are on the way to come to that. Pray that it would be a blessing, that it would be um, sweet, um, and that you would be honored in that. And Spirit, we pray that you would empower um, just our whole morning and the service that's coming up. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so um, uh, where we uh, left off with talking about the Trinity, we basically talked about the Father's relationship to the Son, um, and we talked about how uh, the, the, the Father really is the initiator, and we'll talk more about that actually, um, I don't know about next time, but kind of in the last in sequence, not because the Father is uh, the last or in any sense of that, they're all equal in that, um, but... Uh, just in some ways, it's easier to talk about the Father's relationship to the Son first, and then today we're going to talk about the Spirit's relationship to the Father and Son, but in general, we would say the Father is the initiator, the planner, uh, and then the, um, the Son takes his direction from the Father. Uh, what we want to introduce today is the Spirit. Now, this um, gets somewhat complicated, one, because we're talking about the Trinity, but two, uh, there is less data, um, biblically speaking, um, where the Spirit is explicitly addressed in the sense of talking about relationships with the Father and the Son. Uh, so there, there is data, uh, it's there, and we'll talk through some of it, but it just gets a little bit harder. And so the way we're going to start today is actually to do a little bit of history. Um, so you as we've been walking through the scriptures, we've seen the data that's there that shows there is one God, um, and that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, uh, and yet they're distinct. Um, but really, as the church looks at the Bible, and as they um, talk and interact with each other, it takes some time for them to hammer out uh, an expression of the doctrine of the Trinity. And where that starts is the Son. And the whole Arian controversy that happens early in the fourth century, because uh, you've got um, those who are Arians that are saying, "No, the Son is 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 a sort of divine, but he's a creature." There was a time when he wasn't, um, and then the Father begets the Son, but in the sense of inferiority, uh, which is not what we talk about when we talk about the eternal beginning of the Son. And so that's the, that was the starting point: is really Christ's uh, divinity. And so that's where you get the Nicene Creed of 325. Now, I didn't know if you knew this. I didn't know this um, uh, before I went to seminary. There are actually, uh, the Nicene Creed that we normally recite today is actually a revision of the uh, Creed in 325. I've got both. So I'm going to go ahead and read the Nicene Creed of 325. And the reason I'm reading this in, uh, in connection with talking about the Spirit is I want you to see how um, scant... Uh, the reference is to the Spirit in 325, and then the difference 
uh, in the, the revision in 381. So here's the Nicene Creed of 325. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, i.e., of the essence of the Father, God of God and light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he cometh to judge the quick and the dead. So you can see there's not much, really, on the Father, although there's a description of deity, but there's a whole lot said about the Son, because that's where the controversy was. So here's the section on the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Ghost. That's it. Um, that's it, because the focus of the controversy what, so, you know, the creed starts, we believe in, and so the Father, the Son, and then we believe in the Holy Ghost. That's it, uh, because that wasn't the focus of the controversy. Now, here's the last bit of the, the 325 creed. And those who say there was a time when he, referring to the Son, was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or out of another substance, or thing, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So you can see again by how the, the last phrase, the, the anathema, really is what that is, by the church, saying, hey, if you say the son's begot, uh, like made in, or is a creature in any sense, you're anathema, you're condemned. Um, and so again, you can see even by that ending, the focus is on the son and the son's deity, which was necessary. So then you get a few decades, and um, there's a second council, um, the council at Constantinople. So 325, the council is at Nicaea. But in 381, you have the council at Constantinople, and they revisit the, um, the creed and uh, take some things away and add some things, okay? Uh, so here's the, what we normally think of as the Nicene Creed, uh, is really the Nicene-Constantinople Creed of 381. So here, listen to it. We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and on the third day rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he cometh again from, with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. So again, there's a lot of emphasis on the Son. There's actually some added phrases. Now here's the section on the Holy Ghost. And in the Holy Ghost, who is Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And notice they took the anathema off on the end. Not that they didn't believe that still, but um, they, they, they rebalanced things, right? The first one was kind of focused heavily on the son. The second, uh, there's still a limited amount on the father, uh, still a lion's share on the sun, but now we've got 
uh, more articulation of the Spirit, and which is what we want to talk about. That's 381, okay? Now, you will notice, uh, let me reread that paragraph just one more time on the, the Holy Spirit. And in the, so we believe in the Holy Ghost, who is the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets in one holy and Catholic uh, Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. Amen. I will remind you that Catholic uh, just means universal. Um, so it's not like Roman Catholic at this point, although um, th- there's only one church. Um, there's only one um, organization and understanding that there is one universal church, hence the word Catholic. That's what that word means. Okay. Now, what does, how does the creed refer to the Son in his relationship to the Father? What, what, we talked about this word, but what's the Son's relationship to the Father from eternity? Begotten, Begotten right? How about the Spirit? Proceeds, okay? And notice what the creed says, who proceedeth from the Father. Nothing else, okay? That's what the creed of 381 says. However, and here's where this intersects with our discussion of the Spirit. So we're talking about the Spirit proceeds. Uh, Really, the idea is uh, the Spirit, um, whether you're talking Old Testament, New Testament, the word um, for that usually gets translated Spirit is the same word for wind or breath um, or something like that. We talked about that before. So when they're talking about procession, usually the idea is um, the fancy word is spiration. But really, all that that means is breathing out, an eternal breathing out. So if you've got eternal begottenness between a father and a son, a begottenness that never had a beginning, it's not, um, it's not a begottenness of creation, it's a, be- it's a begottenness from all eternity. There is a s- similar but different reality with the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit proceeds. The Spirit proceeds eternally. He is breathed out eternally from the Father. Okay, That's what the Creed is saying. Now, um, you might have heard the Nicene Creed before, and you say, hey, wait a minute, I think I've heard it, um, it, just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard the Nicene Creed before, or recited it? Okay, a handful, good. We sing it. Uh, yeah, which song is that? We believe in, okay, yeah. Um, and it's like a musical adaptation of it, which is great. Um, what you may have noticed is that the creed, at least the 381 creed, says that the Spirit only proceeds from the Father. Well, as time goes on, um, a clause gets added, and this clause is known as the filioque clause. Filioque is Latin, um, saying, and from the Son. Okay? Now, what happens is Augustine, you guys all know about Augustine, right? Bishop of, um, in North Africa, uh, in Hippo. And uh, what happens uh, between 325 and 381, and even after, uh, around that time, Augustine writes his big old treatise on the Trinity. Uh, And he reflects on the Trinity in multiple ways. And one of the things that he argues is that, well, um, in order for the Son and the Father to be equal in deity, then the Spirit also has to come from the Son. So that's what Augustine is saying. His argument is basically, well, if, if the Father and the Son are really equal in their deity, in their essence, 
then they, um, then the Spirit who proceeds from the Father must also proceed from the Son. And so what Augustine says is, well, really the Spirit proceeds by one procession from both the Father and the Son. Now, Augustine is in the western part of the church, and his theology of the Trinity dominates the western part of the church. It becomes essentially the church's theology of the Trinity down to, the very, to this very day, at least in the western church. In the eastern church, um, there is a uh, the, the the Eastern Church. Oh, where's the dividing line? Um, I mean, the dividing line is uh, okay. Uh, Turkey, yeah. Thank you. So, um, so the dividing line is essentially Turkey, right? Constantinople, the capital, the new Roman capital, is in the eastern part of the church, or it's right there, kind of on the dividing line. So you got the eastern part of the church, um, and then the western part of the church. And the eastern, the way Augustine would talk about the Trinity, he would say, well. The unity of the persons is based on their one essence, their godness. All three share their same godness, therefore their unity is based on their shared godness. Okay, that's what Augustine would say. Now, the eastern part of the church says, well, really the trinity, really the unity of the persons comes from the Father. Uh, And so the eastern church would talk about and would emphasize the persons way more. They would say that, well, because the Son is begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father, they both come from the Father, they both have relationship to the Father. So the unity of the Trinity is based on the, the person of the Father. So the Eastern is more person-focused, uh, whereas Augustine says, no, let's talk about the essence, the shared essence, the godness of, of the three persons that they share, Okay. Is this making sense, uh, at least as far as a, a kind of a sketch? I'm not going into the details. I'm suppressing a lot of facts, right? But I'm just trying to give you a sketch of history here, okay? Because it's really important to understand where we stand in history, okay? Any questions so far? Okay, so then in the western part of the church, buys into Augustine's theology, and they start adding to the Nicene Creed, uh, the spirit proceedeth from the father, filioque, uh, and I'm, my Latin's terrible, right? But and from the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So that gets added to the Nicene Creed in 589 uh, in Toledo, Spain. So there's a council in Toledo, Spain, and that's when they add that phrase in. And the eastern part of the church is talk, talks to the, sees that and basically says to the western part of the church, what are you doing? Uh, they think they're crazy. One, because they're messing with a creed that is supposed to be a creed of the universal church, and the Western church just starts messing around with it. But they also have big issues theologically with saying that the, sun, um, that the, the, the spirit also proceeds from the sun. Basically, the Eastern church comes back and says, we don't see scriptural warrant for that. Um, and really your whole argument that the Son needs to be, um, in order to be equally and divine with the Father, the Spirit needs to proceed from Him, that doesn't make any sense because, well, then how about the Spirit? Because who proceeds from the Spirit? If procession has to do with equal divinity, uh, then there's a problem with the Spirit. And so basically Augustine's argument falls apart. But um, Augustine's, um, the, the filioque clause um, um, continues in the Western church, and it creates friction over centuries. Uh, And there's other things politically going on as well, but 
uh, it creates this theological friction between the eastern part of the church and the western part of the church, up to the point of the Great Schism, which is the biggest split, the biggest church split in history, happens in 1054 when the eastern and western church basically anathematize each other and go their separate ways uh, to this very day, right? So that's where we have eastern orthodoxy, or even Russian orthodoxy is an offshoot of that. The orthodox church, that's what when you're talking about the Orthodox Church, it's talking about the Eastern kind of half of the church and an Eastern understanding of things. Um, but the main, like I said, there's other political issues happening, unfortunately. But as far as the main theological point of difference, it's the filio, filioque clause in the Nicene Creed. Okay? Now, we keep going through history. Uh, still, in the Western part of the church, um, you know, there's still, the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So then the Reformation happens, you know, um, Martin Luther, 1517, nails the 95 Theses, things progress from there. And basically, the Reformation, one of the key things of the Reformation was uh, all about authority. What authority does the church have and what authority does it not have? And what authority does tradition have versus um, the, the Scriptures? The Roman Catholic Church at that time uh, basically um, said, well, Scripture and tradition have equal authority. And really, the church gets to interpret uh, what the Scriptures say, so you have to follow what the church's interpretation is, right? So that was one of the big issues in the Reformation that was fought, one of the core issues. Now, you would think in all this mix, so what happens is the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, they all relook at a lot of these doctrines, and they say, hey, wait a minute, that's actually not taught in Scripture. Hey, wait a minute, that's actually not taught in Scripture. And so you might think, well, maybe they're going to revisit the filioque clause, but they don't, okay? Um, the Reformers, like, basically lock, stock, and barrel just continued with the Spirit proceeding from the Father into the Son down to the present day. So basically, all Protestants, uh, all Western Christians, whether you're talking Roman Catholic or um, Reformed, um, are basically going to say the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son, okay? Now, the problem with all of that is it's all a bunch of tradition that actually hasn't been lined up with the Scriptures. So I actually think, looking into the issue, I actually think the 381 Creed, I'm siding with the Eastern Church in this. I think the Eastern Church is right. Um, and there's multiple reasons for that. I read a really good article summarizing the history and the theology of the issue. So if you want, you want to read that, I'd be happy to pass that information along with you. Why do I do that? Well, because history, we are all products of history uh, to a certain extent, right? So who we are today, um, we've inherited a tradition um, from our forebearers. Some of it's good and some of it's bad. And what is the ultimate norming norm? The scriptures, right? So I set all of that up to, um, probably because you've heard some of that language, and uh, it sets up kind of our discussion of revisiting the scriptures on, okay, what does the scripture actually say, and how can we, how can we understand this, okay? So that's the end of the history lesson. What questions do you want to ask? Really important, actually, that's, that kind of basic, if, uh, just giving that brief kind of sketchy map of history, that'll help you in a lot of a lot of things. Understanding church history is really important. Okay, Genevieve. Oh, of course. Yes. Right. Um, yes. Um, 
basically, what do we need to do? So let's go back to our fundamental, you know, even talking points of this whole thing of uh, why, um, how do we even talk about God? What, what are our ground rules, right? And remember one of our fundamental things that we said is it can never be wrong to talk about God the way that scriptures, that scriptures talk about him as long as you are understanding them according to authorial intent. So we always have to revisit and norm our norms, our creeds, etc., our confessions by the scriptures. So we need to go back to the scriptures and take a look at, well, what data is there that we can look at um, to, uh, to talk about the relationship of the Spirit to the Father and the Son. Now, it's going to be very similar to what we did with the Son. But like I said at the start, there's way less data, okay? One of the key principles that I would argue for, and different theologians differ on this, is that what we see, um, what we see with the Son, with the incarnation and the missions of redemption that the whole Trinity participates in, that that is an, also an act of revelation of who God is. So you think about John 1.18, right? Uh, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten God, referring to the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The idea is, is that through the incarnation and through how the Trinity works out its work, its one work and its different man, um, aspects in history, uh, reveals who God is. You have to be careful. So basically what we're saying is that even in the incarnation, the incarnate son and how he relates to his father still gives us information about who God is in himself in eternity. Now there's only a certain point you can take that to because even in the incarnation and even history, um, there's, uh, it's, it's still revelation. Revelation is not comprehensive. In other words, even from the scriptures, we do not know God comprehensively, nor will we. But the revelation that God has given us is adequate to talk about himself. Well, the other thing we talked about at the beginning of this whole knowing God study is uh, scripture itself is not the only form of revelation. Actions in history, God's actions in history are also revelation. And in particular, we would say God's actions through his son, the incarnate word, would give us information about the father. Well, drawing an analogy then with also the Spirit, the Spirit also acts in time, in history, in, in all of these ways. And so like what we did with the Son, it would be fair to look at passages and say, okay, what do we see how the Spirit is interacting with the Father and the Son, even in history? Uh, and what does that maybe tell us about their eternal relationships? And so that's how we're going to go through this, is picking out key passages and things like we did with the Son, to try to get some indications and some patterns of how do they relate, how do they work, okay? Let me pause there and make sure we understand how we're going to go about this. And uh, any questions? All right, stop me and ask questions as we go. Well, and especially... Yeah, it's especially how, it's not only history, like the history of the church that we just talked about, but it's also how, how does the Trinity act in history? So there's this distinction that theologians make between who God is in himself, like from all eternity before anything's created, right? So before anything's created, you can think like that. God is who he is in and of himself, and he has relationships in and of himself, right? The Father has a relationship with the Son, 
the Father eternally begets the Son. Uh, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, right? There's these relationships that are eternal. But then when God creates, and, uh, you know, as he creates, as he brings about his kingdom in the world, as he redeems, as the Son becomes incarnate, God acts in history, but it's the same trinity, right? The same trinity that has existed for all eternity is the same trinity that's acting in history. So the logic is, and again, um, that what we see of the trinity acting in history is a form of revelation about God himself. And so we are, just like we would with the scriptures, we can, from how the trinity acts in history and how they interact with each other, the persons interact with each other, we can deduce um, what uh, some of those eternal relationships are, up to a point, right? There's always a gap, right? Because uh, we don't know God comprehensively. And even what he has revealed to us is adequate, but not comprehensive. And so we can say what the scriptures and history, through the, uh, the Trinity acting in history, uh, warrants us to say, but we can't go beyond that. And that's where the trickiness has to come, um, comes in. Now, ultimately, even in the actions of the Trinity of history, we're now reliant totally on the written word, right? Because only those actions of the Trinity in history are recorded infallibly and inerrantly in the scriptures. So even as we're talking about the actions in history, we're really ultimately looking at the scriptures to say, okay, how does the Trinity act in history? How do they interwork? And how can we, from that, understand more of who God is? Okay? Um, so hopefully that helps a little bit. Uh, yes, David. <laughs> uh, well, well, we're not even, I haven't even explained why that I would side with the Eastern Church. I've just stated that I do, but I haven't explained why, to Genevieve's point. Um, but like I said, I think the, uh, I, um, there's a good article by a good church historian that if you're interested, I can make sure that gets into your hands. Um, but... But basically, I would side with the Eastern Church in this. I don't think the scripture warrants us saying that the, the spirit proceeds from the son. In fact, I think the pattern is very different uh, based on what I think the scriptures say. So let's jump into that now because it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't even ultimately matter what the church has said. To, um, you know, we still want to respect that tradition. But uh, what did the scripture say? So let's start with just this idea uh, that we see in the creation account and in John 1. Okay, who in the creation account and in John 1, who do we have? Okay, we have God, the Father, right? So normally when the scriptures use the term God, they're referring to the Father. Uh, okay, what does the Father do, both in the creation account and the allusion to the creation account in John 1? He speaks, he speaks. What does he speak? Words, right? He speaks um, words in the creation in the Genesis one account, right? And John, um, under the inspiration of the Spirit, um, uh, says, "All right, the uh, in the beginning was the Word, right?" So that there's this idea and this analogy. Remember, we talked about analogies before. I'm very hesitant to use Trinitarian analogies, except when Scripture uses them. And Scripture has used one. It's used the analogy of a speaker who is the Father. A word, the word, who is the Son. Um, but what about the Spirit? How does the Spirit fit into that analogy? And he does. Even from the Genesis 1 account, even from reflections in the Old Testament. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Uh, in Psalm 33, we looked at this passage when we were talking about this. In Psalm 33, it talks about how by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, um, they were created. And so I think we are warranted, based on Scripture, from drawing a correspondence between the Father as speaker, uh, the Son as word, and the Spirit as breath. Right? Because, I mean, that's even the, just the base sense of the word that we normally translate spirit means wind or breath. What was that psalm again? Uh, it's Psalm 33. Uh, I forget which verse, but it's kind of like midway through the psalm. But it talks about that. Um, by the word of the Lord that heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And so um, what we see there is uh, an analogy that the scriptures themselves have given us that is not comprehensive, but is adequate to at least get us a starting point in thinking about the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Okay? So, um, God is a communicator. He's communicating with human words. He's communicating with words like speaker and breath and word. How does, when we speak, what's the interrelationship between the speaker, breath, and word? Correct. Without breath, you cannot say words. You might have the words formulated in your head, um, and you might have that content right in your head, but the act of speech, uh, you need breath to speak words. And so what we see, even in that pattern, is um, uh, what we see even in, say, the creation account in John 1 is a speaker breathing forth a word content. That is, breath attends, makes possible, and empowers the word. Without the breath, just like, just like Bruce said, without the breath, the word cannot go forth. Okay? Um, now, let's, let's broaden our horizons a little bit um, with this analogy. Um, what does the Spirit do? Uh, what is one of the main things that we see the Spirit doing um, in the scriptures? And that's a broad question, but just think about what we, what we know he does. He's given us life. Okay, he's given us life, he convicts. What else does he do? Okay, see, so think in terms of speech. What else does the Spirit do that has to do with speech? Okay, he intercedes for us, very good, so that's good. Communicates. Communicates how? What, what ways does he communicate? There you go. Through the prophets. Right? That this idea is the Father in creation, right, um, speaks of uh, uh, words that create, and there's this analogy between even his eternal relationships between uh, the Word, meaning the Son, and the breath. But we also see that the Spirit, the Father speaks by the prophets. How does he do that? By the Spirit. Uh, go to 2 Peter 1.21. Just to refresh our minds on this. One of these key passages. It's one of Steve's favorites. I know that. Second <coughs> Peter 1.21. Okay. 
this is there's still more of that verse, right? As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Your your starts at wait wait oh you put preachers again sorry first Peter second Peter second Peter, Peter. preachers against Eden. There it is. Okay, there we go. It's just that the ESV puts it in a different order. Sorry about that. Um, uh, so, what do we see here? We see God uh, speaking. How does he speak? He speaks through men carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there's this understanding that when God speaks, he speaks by means of his Spirit to get communication across. We see that through the revelation of the Scriptures, through the revelation of the prophets and apostles. Uh, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is what? God breathed. God breathed. And the word is literally theonoustos, which is uh, a form of the word for spirit. So it's God breathed. Uh, it's, it's, it still has that idea of God's breath, um, his breathing, carrying forth the word. Okay? Uh, go to Hebrew, now go to Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay, so we already know that the Father uh, um, speaks, breathes his word through other messengers. Here those messengers are referred to, right? God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Prophets who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now there's a contrast. But in his last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So again, we see that analogy and that relationship where God speaks through a new messenger, the ultimate messenger, the one who is the Word himself. Um, but through the, what we see with the other prophets, that would no less diminish the reality that God speaks through his Son as empowered, as enabled by the Spirit. So the point of all of this, and the point of talking about this, is a pattern. A pattern that we see in Genesis 1, a pattern that we see in John 1, a pattern that uh, in you know, Psalm 33 that we talked about, is it seems a pattern to indicate a pattern um, of the word coming forth from the speaker by the breath. Or then we draw it back to the, um, to the names a pattern of the Son coming forth from the Father by the Spirit. Think about that. Just in the act of, we already said, in the act of speaking, which this is the analogy that seems like Scripture itself is giving us, that the Word comes forth from the speaker through breath. It, would, it seemed to indicate a pattern of the Son coming forth from the Father by the Spirit. Okay, what questions do you want to ask? We're not done. This is just the start. But um, what question do you want to ask at this point? Yeah, so the pattern that we seem to be seeing is this. The word 
coming forth from the speaker by the breath. And then to draw it back into, you know, the words of the, the names of the, the Trinity. A pattern of the Son coming forth from the Father, which we already know about, by the Spirit. We already know about the Son coming forth from the, the Father, eternal begottenness, right? But now what we're adding in, potentially, based on what we're seeing from patterns in Scripture, is that that action of eternal begottenness actually happens by means of the Spirit. That's kind of where we're headed with this. Which is not, I'll be honest, like that's not how people normally talk about this. And all I'm saying is like, well, based on the, and this isn't the only spot, like I said, we're not done. Uh, that pattern seems to hold again and again and again. Where the Spirit does proceed from the Father, but He proceeds from the Father to the Son not from the Son. Um, so again, that's just the start of this pattern. There's more passages I have to take you to. What other questions do you want to ask at this point? Well, I guess for me, this kind of brings to mind and maybe something that should be always considered is that we, we tend to want to always honor the fact that there is an equality in the Trinity between the triumphant mm -hmm. elements of the Trinity. But that shouldn't take away from the fact that there is a purpose for the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Each component of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, has a purpose. So although they are equal, you, you have to kind of ferret out or work out well, what is each doing, and in that, then therefore there is a relationship yes. between them. And so you have to work out that relationship. And that's what we're trying to do. And this is one of the huge critiques of the Eastern Church to the Western Church, because what Augustine started to do, and what we have inherited, is he started talking in terms of God in kind of a generic sense, like we do, right? Where Augustine was saying, well, let's talk about the unity of God based on every person's godness, the godness that they share, the essence of God that they share, which is true. There's no doubt that that's true. But then the conversation shifted. The conversation of the Trinity shifted to where the focus is talking about this kind of generic God and his godness and his attributes. Don't we talk about God in that way, right? If you flip open almost like any systematic theology or theology book, it's going to start with the being and the attributes of God considered in the abstract. And then what it's going to do is it's going to talk about the Trinity. And what the Eastern Church said is, no, 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 no. The, the, the deity of the, uh, the unity and the deity of the persons flows from the Father. Uh, the Father conveys his essence, his godness to the Son and the Spirit, uh, one through begottenness, one through procession. Um, and so, yes, they all equally share the godness, but they, the way Augustine started to talk about it and the way the tradition started to happen is, the distinctions in the person started to be suppressed. To the point where now when we pray, we are very confused, aren't we? Because we normally pray, um, thank you, God, for um, dying for my sins. Well, the Son died for my sins, right? Um, or we might even say, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross. Well, the Father didn't die on the cross, right? And so because we've 
suppressed for so long, these distinctions between the persons. Now we have to work extra hard at thinking, well, what does the scripture actually say? And this helps us relate to this, this triune God rightly, right? But what we're fighting is history and tradition, which is not necessarily bad. I'm not saying tradition is bad. I'm just saying that it always has to be examined by the norming norm of the scriptures, right? Um, and so this has very practical implications for how we live our Christian life, right? Because if, uh, uh, how does Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father, right? Um, or even the places in scripture where you see the word God, it's not just talking about God in the abstract, like we've seen most often, when you see even in the New Testament, the word God, it's referring to the Father. And so that changes how you read the scriptures, it changes how you pray, it changes how you relate to this God. And even as I've been going through the study, I'm like, I've just kind of been humbled, like, oh my goodness. Like, kind of like, uh, it's, in, you know, how disrespectful, that's I guess how I feel about it, how disrespectful I've been to the Trinity. Unintentionally, unintentionally, but like, there's, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have revealed to an extent, not fully, not comprehensively, their relationships. And so we want to work hard at knowing those. So what? So that we can relate to this God and worship him and respectfully and honorably. So, uh, yes, you
help us as we continue to talk next week uh, about the Spirit and help us to truly and rightly understand um, how, this, uh, how, the, how the Spirit relates to you, Father.